today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is August 14th. My name is Hannah Pegel, one of the co-hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. And Mike, what is going on in your neck of the woods? You know, not a whole lot. I just, I installed this really awesome speaker in my house that plays out airport updates. You know, I don't know if you could hear it there, Hannah, but it's it's a pretty cool feature. That That's a very interesting feature, Mike. Um... Yeah, you know, I like to, I'm living on the edge. It's like a, it's an avant-garde art piece, kind of. Either that or it's like the airport in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. Oh, is that where you're actually at, Mike? Could be, could be. Could have been up here talking to a group of independent bankers. And, you know, it's interesting, Hannah. We hear a lot of doom and gloom, and we report some doom and gloom here on the podcast. But by and large, the lenders up here are feeling fairly confident there's a little to be worried about, of course, you know, like we see in the industry overall. There are some producers feeling the strain, but by and large, folks appear to be set to make it through at least another year. But, uh, boy, they, they'd love to see a bounce in prices, that's for sure. Mm, I have no doubt. That's that's very interesting, but you, I'm sure you've got a great perspective on farmers up in North Dakota. So. Yeah, it's always fun. North Dakota, you know, this is a place where they can grow like 32 crops. Because they can grow like sunflowers and what else up there? Oh, canola, sunflowers, flax, lentils, field peas, wow. edible beans, so corn, soybeans, a wide durum variety. wheat. Winter, uh, actually, I don't know if they grow much winter wheat, That's a, but spring wheat for sure. Okay, okay. Well, very fascinating. Wow. Yeah, and so for our listeners in the I states, I have an update. I told them all to quit growing soybeans. So hopefully that will help our soybean prices and, uh, you know, reduce the glut of beans out on the market today. The I states? What's that? The Iowa, Indiana, and Illinois, Hannah. The, uh, you know, the oh, corn and soybean oh, states. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's my update. What's going on with you? Sorry I missed the podcast yesterday. Well, hey, you know, me and Delaney, we got it all covered. And, you know, there's been some, you know, some updates for trade. And uh, one update for you, Mike, is yesterday we talked a little bit about the Pete Pegasus cargo ship. It finally was able to unload its cargo yesterday. Oh, very exciting. What a finally an end to that uh, that story. Mm-hmm. I told Delaney the only thing is we just didn't get to interview one of the sailors on that ship to see what they've been doing that whole month they were waiting. But, yeah, that's good news that it finally was able to get unloaded and, you know, we got some more soybeans into China. But, Mike, looking at the world of egg news, is there anything that is jumping out to you? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I am on the board of directors for the Iowa Cattlemen Association, so I'm going to be straight off the bat here, Hannah. I am biased on this next story, um, and this is it's cattle industry related, and the cattle industry group, RCAF, has for a long time not been thrilled with the way the checkoff is handled, and they have sued the Montana Beef Council as a test case. And they are now expanding their lawsuit, trying to basically 
change the way the checkoff is done. They either like to get rid of it or perhaps give give producers a choice in where to send that dollar checkoff fee and um they have just they just keep expanding that lawsuit and the NCBA which is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association came out with a statement saying they are opposed to this lawsuit and they continue to reaffirm their belief in the checkoff interesting okay yeah yeah, and so my bias there, Hannah, is that, you know, with the Iowa Cattlemen's Association, we work closely with the Iowa Beef Industry Council, which is the group that oversees uh, the checkoff. And um, I'm a big fan of what they've done and in, you know, growing uh, beef demand in uh, in Iowa and nationwide. Mm-hmm. And I guess, Mike, I'm not very familiar with the R, you said RCAF, right? Yes. Okay, so that's like a part of the checkoff or... Sorry. RCAF is like um, it's like the National Cattlemen's. It's a voluntary association of producers, and then they just have a different set of priorities than the National Cattlemen's Association. But they work jointly together, or no? Uh, depends on the issue. On okay. some issues, like opening up Western Range and encouraging grazing, NCBA and RCAF have have worked together. On a lot of issues when it comes to checkoff and uh, sort of the lobbying aspect in D.C., uh, sometimes they're opposed to one another. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so, for clarifying that. You betcha. Well, Mike, I have some new news about E. coli. So there is a new E. coli detecting method. A researcher at Michigan received a $100,000 grant to develop this fast-paced method to detect E. coli bacteria on either fresh produce and in water. His name is Kevin Streicher. He is an ecological researcher at Grand Valley State University. And essentially, he is developing this test that uses a series of imaging flowing um, with a cytometer, is what it says. And this cytometer is a tool that can sample thousands of cells per second with a laser, and then it can identify and mark specific pathogens based off of this laser. And so they can quickly um, figure out if produce or if water is contaminated by E. coli, and this is to essentially to eliminate the use of the traditional practice, which um, currently we are to identify E. coli. It either takes many hours or even days to confirm um, a detection of a pathogen. And so this tool, oh. it just it delivers the, the results a lot quicker and it can identify if this produce or if water has the bacteria within minutes or even seconds. So right now... Um, this professor or this researcher uh, is currently in the testing stage, but with this grant, he is hoping to get out into field-based study very shortly. You know, Hannah, it sounds like this is something they ought to have on every table there at Chipotle. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe that would problem. maybe that would help them out a little bit. <laughs> you know, it definitely could. Um, but they're looking at, you know, this is something that they can easily have right out when they're starting harvest you know if they they don't even have to harvest oh. it if um if they've already detected hey this field has e coli we need to you know treat it right now or we're not even gonna spend time and you know cost to even harvest this this product because it's not going to be good it's contaminated 
Very cool. Yeah, so there you're saving labor, you're saving, uh, you know, waste and all sorts of goods, and of course, people's health. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Very right? cool. Well, I've got an update here. You know, we're talking meat, talking beef, talking pork, and the pork industry, of course, is dealing with a huge supply of little piggies and pork loins and pork chops and so forth. And WH Group, which is the world's largest pork company, it is the Chinese company that bought Smithfield several years ago, they have warned in their first half earnings that the biggest challenge they face is that overabundance of meat in the U.S. and trade tensions. Because even though they are a Chinese company, every pound of pork brought into China, whether it's China-owned or U.S.-owned, is going to be hit with that very same tariff. So WH said they are encouraging or ramping up their shipments of pork to Japan and South Korea and Mexico so they can get away from that core Chinese buyer in case this trade war, you know, goes on for quite a while. Hmm. Okay. That's that's pretty interesting news right there, Mike. Yeah. You know, I just think it's good to realize that I've had people ask me, you know, Smithfield, owned by a Chinese company, are they hit with the tariffs? And yeah, certainly looks like they will be. Hmm. Well, you know what goes around comes around, and this trade war is just hitting all aspect, all aspects of you know that come around. So, yes, indeed. Well, Mike, did you see that EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler was in Iowa yesterday? I did. Do we have an update on what he talked about and who he spoke with? So he was present at the Iowa State Fair, and he was in a uh, closed-door session to speak with some government officials and some agribusiness leaders and even some farmers. And in this press briefing, he pledged to provide more transparency in the decision-making and more regulatory certainty from the federal agency as um the future comes along, but it kind of seems that there was some mixed, you know, emotions going on here with what, what they thought Andrew Wheeler was doing. He said, Wheeler said that he recognizes the importance because a, a lot of the discussion was based off of the renewable fuels standard. And mm. he said he recognized the importance of the RFS um, to its entire country and as well as the Iowans who, you know, they were asking about the year-round access to E15, and they were talking about the Reed vapor pressure waivers. Um, but, you know, he the thing is, is he was kind of dancing around a lot of the questions, it seems like, and that I don't really think that went over very well, especially with the farmers that were in the room. Uh, some of the comments uh, were mainly just, you know, they... They emphasized that they they didn't really receive the information that they were hoping to get out of Wheeler and that he really didn't make things more transparent with them by the end of the meeting. So, like I said, no. it seemed like as if he was just dancing around a lot of the questions. But Well, yeah, I think it would have been good if, uh, if Andrew Wheeler had been a bit more outspoken. I think the ag community would have been reassured by that, Hannah. It's, it's kind of sad he uh, chose the politician's way out. Yeah, you know, you're right, Mike. I mean, but this is politics and these are politicians. And sometimes, you know, like I said, they dance around questions and you're not going to get a straight, transparent answer from them. 
Yep, tippy tap, tippy tap, tippy tap, tap, dance and dance and dance. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. I've got just one other piece of news before I am done for the day here, and this is a throwback to that story we talked about late last week. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals last week ordered the EPA to ban chlorpiferos. And at the time, according to Todd Neely at DTN, zero agricultural groups had been at the court petitioning on behalf of chlorpiferose. Well, now that the EPA has been told to ban it within the next 60 days, the national sorghum producers have issued a statement. They came out and said they are disappointed in the Ninth Circuit Court's decision. Uh, They say chlorpiferose and its various formulations is a vital tool used in rotation to control damaging pests such as sorghum midge, various aphid species, and sorghum webworm and headworm. And they say it's additional, uh, it's, Short residual activity makes it among the more environmentally safe products, especially in semi-arid conditions in which sorghum is often grown. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anything that EPA can do with that statement unless they can get this Ninth Circuit's ruling overturned. Well, it looks like the sorghum uh, producers, they're like the third group that has spoken out against it because I think... Crop Life America and also Corteva have also either issued letters or issued statements about their feelings on this ruling. So maybe if they can get more companies to join on this bandwagon, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's one thing that's so important is you have to have a presence if you want to be able to be in that discussion. And so I feel like now we're trying to play catch up. I think that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. You know, if if you're late, then you're you're playing catch up. If you're not at the table, Hannah, you're on the table. That's correct, Mike. Well, do you have any other news for us to wrap up this Tuesday, or should we jump into the markets? I don't have any other news, Mike. So why don't you get us into the markets? Perfect, folks. And a reminder: our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Give them a call, put a marketing plan in place, and mitigate your marketing risk by calling 312-277-0050. Well, it's the first time since we've seen this. Green's pretty well across the board, with one exception. We'll get to that in just a bit. But beginning with the corn market, September corn up five and three quarter cents to close at three sixty-two and a quarter. December up six cents, finished at three seventy-six and a half. In soybeans, the August contract up eleven cents on the day, finished at eight sixty-four and a half. The November contract also closed higher by eleven, finished the day at eight seventy-nine and three quarters. In the wheat pit, Chicago September wheat up eight and a quarter cents at five forty-one and three quarters. December up seven and three quarters, finished at five sixty-one and a quarter. Looking over on the livestock side, in live cattle again, it is all green here. In the August live cattle contract up seventy-seven and a half cents, finished at one hundred seven ninety-seven fifty. The October up fifty-seven fifty to close at one hundred eight seventy-two and a half. In feeder cattle, the August contract up twenty-seven fifty, finished one forty-eight ninety-two and a half. The September up. 22 and a half to finish at 148.67. Mixed trade in lean hogs today with the August front month contract down 52 and a half at 55 even. The October up 20 closed at 51.85. And of course a quick look at the dairy market here in the class 3 milk contracts. The August was unchanged on the day with September up 11 cents to finish at 16.13. Well, folks, that'll do it for today. But before we wrap up, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. 
Well, joining me now is agronomy specialist Phil Long from Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, thank goodness we have you because Mike and I are no agronomists. And we've heard from a lot of producers and you've heard from a lot of producers about a problem going on right now called frog eye leaf spot disease. Fill us in, Phil. What is that disease and what does it do to soybeans? Sure. So it's a, it's a fungal disease. It's uh, something that we may not hear about quite as often. But, you know, given the conditions we've had, these nice, uh, humid, rainy conditions we seem to keep getting, uh, fortunately, I should say, but uh, tends to favor this kind of disease uh, showing up in the, in the soybean canopy. And the problem with it is it shows up in the top part of the canopy or the upper canopy on the new leaves, which is the ones you want to protect, you know, usually. And uh, that's where it starts to show up as a circular lesion. It's, it's a round little circle, and it has a really dark purple uh, halo around the outside. So pretty pretty characteristic of that particular disease, but it, it can affect the leaves, stems, and even spread into the seeds as well. So it's something that you want to keep your eye on because it can cause a fair share of damage, and only 30% infection on a leaf can, can cause yield loss. Phil, I think you know what my next question is going to be. Is there anything you can do to prevent or treat frog eye when you get it in your field yeah so the best thing to do is number one know what it is you know that's what i always try to try to encourage people know what you're diagnosing but then you know it's, it's one that's spread by residue so you know uh, no-till situations typically find it uh, worse in those cases or continuous soybean fields if there are many of those out there that's uh, something to maybe shy away from for a year or two not not trying that practice um, but just uh, you know, protecting it all the way up to the really the green bean stage. So R3 is a good time to treat if you're going to use a, a strobilurin type fungicide on that disease. Um, but just keeping it protected until those those seeds are to that that full seed stage. All right, and any one of the agronomists there at Latham High Tech Seeds, I'm sure will be willing to help folks out if you have questions about your field, and you can reach them at 1-800-GO-LATHAM. Well, folks, as I alluded there at the end of the markets, we do not have a Tech Tuesday interview today. Hannah, things have just been crazy around the office, haven't they? It has been, Mike, especially since we don't have an office. So, I mean... (laughs) Yes, that usually makes it a little more difficult. But we do have a request for all of our listeners. You know, every Tuesday we do try to highlight some technology that's new in the world of agriculture, whether it's a company or a practice or a genetic improvement, and I tell you what, Hannah, I think we'd love to get some more suggestions about who we should be talking to, don't you think? I agree, Mike. We would love to hear from you, Ag News Daily listeners. Who have you been hearing about, or who have you seen that would be a great hashtag Tech Tuesday interview to do something with? So shoot us an email, shoot us a a comment, a suggestion. We would love to hear from you. Now, Hannah, if they want to maybe go the easiest route, which is shoot a note to us there on social media, how can they find us? Well, Mike, that's a great question. They can head to our social media pages on Facebook and on Twitter, and they can just search Ag News Daily, or they can go to our website at www.agnewsdaily.com. There they can leave a little suggestion or a little comment, uh, and we will read those, and we will get get some more hashtag tech tuesday um interviews on the podcast so mike with that should we let the people go let's let them go hannah 